0: Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode six of the podcast, the topic is human-robot interaction challenges. Our guest is Kel Garen, Chief Innovation Officer, Ready Robotics. In this conversation, we talk about trends in robotic manufacturing community, solutions, robotic OS, and the future, including a vision of a world where open robotic platforms dominate and no specialized skills are required to operate robots. Augmented is a podcast for leaders hosted by futurist and Arnevenheim, presented by tulip.co, the manufacturing app platform, and associated with MFG Works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Kel, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Tron? It's, uh, it's good to have you, uh, Kel. Let's uh, let's get right into it. I mean, you have been exploring these human robotic challenges for, for a while and it's ex- exciting to see. And hear from you, uh, you know what you think about the, the situation right now. I wanted to actually maybe uh, just uh, ask you quickly: what what is it that got you into this uh, human robot challenge? So I had actually spent a lot of time
1: working with robots in a lot of different environments. So I've worked on robots that are meant to operate in space and in mining, um, underwater, uh, as well as in a surgical setting in a hospital. And the sort of middle ground of all of those was that all of these robots were very difficult to control. Uh, A surgical robot was ergonomically very difficult for a surgeon to sit there for 45 minutes or five hours, right, with the surgery and use it. Um, a mining robot with like six legs, it required like two people and four joysticks. And it was just this nightmare of of how to actually interact with it. So it, it got me thinking while the the technology was there to put a robot on the moon or put a robot at the bottom of the ocean or in a person's body, the interesting challenge for me was how to make uh, the human interface to that robot um, more accessible so that the expert, the surgeon, the astronaut, the miner um, could much more easily interact with this important device that was either helping them in that environment or being their surrogate in that environment.
0: And and you seem to have straddled the, the field of innovation from both the academic side and the founder side for, for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about that that journey. It's not uncomplicated, right? A lot of people make the choice. They're either gonna be sort of academics or, or entrepreneurs. You you seem to want to straddle both or have you are you do you have to choose now that you're of, you know running a company
1: <laughs> I continue to go back and forth um, and it, and it's interesting because you know a lot of uh, a lot of the research that we worked on um, when I was getting my PhD was very theoretical, right it, not really applicable in the real world yet. I however had an experience uh, during my PhD where we visited a factory. Uh, we I was sort of working on human interface technology that was very, you know, Lots of math and and not really practical. We ended up visiting a factory that showed me how that technology could be used in the real world, in immediately, right? And because of that, that sort of shifted the entire narrative of my um, my work because I found that the problems that we were solving, where we were solving them for sort of more futuristic things like working in space and stuff like that. Um, they could actually affect real people right now and, and assist with uh, the problems that manufacturing was having and continues to have. And so that sort of led me from uh, to, to sort of waver a little bit away from the academic side into the entrepreneurial side, because that was the way to get that technology into the hands of others. Um, This was something that was important because of the grants that we were on. Um, People were very interested in seeing the federal money that was funding us actually do real things in the real world. So we had a lot of support from that standpoint. The the entrepreneurial ecosystem in, at that time, Baltimore, um, surrounding Johns Hopkins was very strong. Um, but that's really what pulled me out of academia and um, and into uh, the world of running a startup because that's how I could get that technology into the people's hands that need it the most.
0: Hmm. So let's jump straight into some of the most uh, important human-robot interaction challenges at the moment. If you look at uh, kind of what the robot manufacturing community currently is struggling with, uh, w- w- you know, there, there are, there's technology, there's just sort of simply costs. But then there's also kind of the cross platform issue. If you were to sort of summarize what you think are the most important of these challenges, you know, as we look at it today in the industry, what, what sort of issues come to mind for you? So it's interesting to frame that
1: Um, there was a really interesting uh, statistic that came out of McKinsey a couple of years ago, Uh, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was basically greater than 60% of all manufacturing tasks can be automated with technology we have today. So we're not waiting around for uh, technology to solve the problem. Technology is already able to solve the problem. It's really just getting that technology into the factory. And, And that's being driven by the fact that there's a massive skill shortage in manufacturing. Uh, There's millions of unfilled jobs that we just can't find people skilled enough or familiar enough with uh, that industrial process to fill, and therefore we need to automate to actually... Put robots in the place of those where there aren't people because there's, you know, it's an unfilled position um, to actually meet demand. Um, this is something you saw this past year with COVID. Uh, we've heard from factories making ventilator components who couldn't, you know, couldn't find enough people to work a third shift so that they could make enough ventilators to meet demand. It, it becomes a very uh, challenging problem very quickly. But the result that that has is because people want to automate and there's this desire for that. There's also a shortage of people who are able to actually put that technology in place. And that's really what drives our business is making that barrier um, and making, it, making that barrier less so, so that it's easier to put an, an automated work cell into a factory, to put a robot into a factory uh, it, in a way that doesn't require a huge amount of expertise and a way that kind of unlocks automation for, uh, for the entire manufacturing market.
0: But give me a sense, Kelo, this, why did this problem uh, compound? You know, in other words, I understand that there are different, you know, robot uh, manufacturing companies, but why did it get to this level where the interfaces, at least, you know, from the perspective of the worker, are are still perceived as so difficult? Is it that there really wasn't a focus on usability in in individual companies, or is it sort of largely on the worker side that you're just not familiar with any technology interface or is it a combination thereof or are we kind of waiting for the holy grail solution to sort of just realize that this is a problem ac- across technologies? In other mm-hmm. words, you know, is it just a problem with this one robot that just has this technical interface that someone just needs to figure out and it just takes those skills or is it a much more complex problem that has to do with kind of coordination across platforms and, and, and stuff uh, of that order?
1: It's really, it's really that the, the ladder that you're talking about. And it and it comes from the fact that the, the people who've been deploying automation for the last 20 years have been experts. And therefore, there was no need for any robot manufacturer to make their software easy to use. They just focused on making a better, faster robot. Uh, that's what they spent most of their time on. And so um, the, the people who in that middle layer who are actually installing that automation just learned the the harder interface because they had to because that's that was their business Um, but there are only so many of those people and now we're feeling uh, the fact that we do want to have people who might be more uh, technological layman's Um, you know somebody in manufacturing who's been working there for 30 years they're an expert at what they do but they have you know a feature phone and they might have an email address, right? It's it's that um, type of user that now uh, we need to cater to. And um, there's a huge amount of fragmentation in the robotics market as well, because each brand of robot and, and other devices as well um, all use their own software. They have their own programming language. So if you learn how to use uh, the, the orange robot behind me, for instance, and then you decide to go use the green robot, they're completely different. You have to learn Learn basically everything over again, and it takes weeks or months to learn it once. One of those, right? So that's uh, that's really the barrier is is that not only is it difficult to use, but that all of them are different. And so the need for a platform that not not only makes each of them the same, in sim similarly to how each of our computers is. The same, even though it might be a different brand or a different form factor, it still runs Windows, for instance. Um, uh, and each of those devices is easy to use, right? And and is accessible. I can buy a laptop and uh, just use it. I don't have to learn anything new. And when I buy a different brand of a laptop, I don't have to learn anything new. That's what we've come to expect from technology. That is couldn't be further from the truth in the robotic space until quite recently with some of the technology that we're building.
0: So you were you're kind of alluding to some of the solutions. I could just imagine that there's a myriad of, of uh, well we've talked about a myriad of, of of problems out there. So one of the part of the solution seems to be in in usability and u- user interface design for I guess even just individual robots. Let's say green yeah. <laughs> green and orange robot yeah. over here. Uh, But then I know in the space, there's also uh, much more ambitious trends. Uh, One of them, I believe, is called low code. And then no code is kind of an extremely sort of ambitious term. Um, But And please, you know, if you could explain those terms and what they mean specifically to you in this robotic challenge. But before you do that, I mean, this is not the first time that this challenge has been identified, right? So there's Mm -hmm. There's something called ROS that I'm familiar with, which is this kind of open source system uh, that has existed out there. I thought to to take care of this challenge. And then lastly, you know, in, to throw a last thing into there, um, the issue of sort of standardization and interoperability across across platforms, whether or not it is open source, I guess, is also at least in in the regular computer industry something that. You know is always advocated as a as a way to 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 solve and bridge some of these gaps. Can you navigate the the solution territory for us
1: yeah, sure so um, so let's start with uh, what you said about Ross because really what we're talking about is we're talking about a platform right um, in the computer space, we have platforms that define how we use devices. Windows is an operating system um, we have Android and iOS that are operating systems. Those are also platforms. They have marketplaces, et cetera, but they're fundamentally operating systems in that they let the device underneath be abstracted away, so that I don't need to write assembly code or or all a bunch of stuff above that. Frankly, um, to balance my checkbook or browse the web, right? That's what an operating system does. And then what enables is that those applications that I end up using atop that, right? So let's go back to ROS. So ROS is um, a collection of libraries that it was designed originally to solve a lot of the reoccurring integration problems that you see in academia when doing robotics research, right? And I had this exact same experience. I used ROS heavily during my PhD for the reason that there were already libraries established so that I could uh, talk to a robot, get the data I needed out of it, and get my PhD, right? That's really where it was born out of. And it's been slowly transforming um, into more of a platform uh, with more of a commercial and industrial focus. And that's been that's been a long road coming, and it's not quite there. Um, but when we talk about an operating system, we're not just talking about the layer that allows you to communicate the devices w- with the devices. We're also talking about the things that let you build on top of it, right? What's amazing about um, Android, for instance, is that with very little effort, I can download an SDK, install it on my computer, and build an Android app, and then within a day have it and uh, available to download if people want to download my app everywhere, right? That's the difference between an operating system or a collection of libraries and a platform, right, where not only do I have a place where I can build the, the things that users use on top of it, but I can also distribute those things. Um, and that, and that's, that's kind of the difference.
0: You, you used the term SDK, and I know, you know, in the industry, that's a very familiar term. But what, what uh, does the abbreviation stand for? And what does it really mean, uh, you know, across the robotics community?
1: Right. So it's software development kit. And, and what it really means is that it, the tool set, the tools are available and well documented for you to build something on top of that platform. Right. Android. I go to their website, everything's there, I can read about it, I can learn about it, I can download and I can do it, right? I I need to understand some basics, but all of the tools are there to help me do that, right? And robotics doesn't really have that, uh, especially when we talk about the industrial market, because um, building code that will work in a research environment and building an application that will work in an industrial setting in a factory are very different. And with our line of products, we're thinking about how do you solve the problem of building an operating system that will work across all of these different robots that solves that same problem, but is also industrially rated and commercializable because that's why people want to build these solutions is not only to solve problems but to monetize those solutions because people will pay for good solutions and and all of those pieces have to be there uh, in order to have a successful platform that developers will develop on uh, create amazing applications users will end up buying those applications and using them, and that gets more and more developers excited to build more and more applications, et cetera, et cetera, right? And you get this nice flywheel effect. Um, but you don't have that unless you have all of those different pieces, the the piece that enables the developers, the piece that gets what they make to the end user, and, and, and so on.
0: So, so far, though, you have addressed, I guess, the developers and perhaps the uh, the managers, I guess, of the robotic process inside of the factory, and let's say they have these uh, development kits, uh, and then with with your solution, uh, potentially they start collaborating and can have l- lesser training time to set up the basic process across different robots and across different sort of processes on on the shop floor. But what about these more ambitious uh, terms? Then, so I mean, first off. Uh, there must be a lot of work there in interoperability because, you know, like you pointed out, there are many robots and they are all are quite different. So, give us maybe, I guess, at first a sense of wh- what kind of work it has taken to to actually bridge some of those very different, I would assume, very different technologies. But maybe they weren't that different. They were they were all built on the same kind of background, or what?
1: Yeah, so so for instance, so the, the product that we build that does this is called Forge OS. That's our universal robot operating system. And the goal with Forge was to uh, build a set of tools that takes each robot underneath, and also any other industrial device, because it's not just the robot that's doing the work. It's the grippers, the cameras, all of the hardware that's necessary to make the, the robot actually do the thing it needs to do. Um, but make all of that abstracted away so that the, the end user at the top doesn't care which brand of robot it is. They just see a, a set of generic commands like move or stop, and they're able to use that robot. Um, so that does a couple of things. One, it, it makes it so that the end user, when they do decide to switch from orange to, uh, to green, they don't have to learn anything new. Right? If they decide the green isn't big enough, they can buy you know an orange robot and uh, they don't have to learn any new software. It's all this very straightforward programming system. In order to do that, what we had to do was build the sort of picks and shovels underneath that provide this universal layer so that we can talk to each of these robots in the same way. And that was a huge challenge. It's something that we've worked on for several years because each robot is different and how you communicate with them, there are some similarities between them and some follow similar paradigms, but then you'll have another one that's just completely different and you have to account for that. Hmm. So not only did we have to solve the, the issue of making all of these robots talk a common language, for, for uh, lack of a better way of saying it, but then also what the, that common language was from the perspective of the end user. So now let's talk about the end user, right? The, the person who's actually using this robot on a daily basis. And the application that they would use in Forge OS is called Task Canvas. And Task Canvas is a building block based, as you said, no code Interface. So you're not writing lines of code. That's what you would be doing if you were using any of the robots you see behind me natively. Um, You'd be writing lines of code in their specific language. So there's no lines of code. Um, You just have these building blocks, and each building block represents something that the robot or another component in the system can do. Like move, stop. If it's a gripper, it can open and close. If it's a camera, it can get the position of a part. All of these complex things underneath, but to the end user, the person who's programming this in, uh, the, um, in the factory setting, who might be ideally the person who was previously putting the piece of metal into the machine, right? The operator, somebody who is not an expert in automation or an expert in robotics, right? It's designed to be simple enough so that they can use this building block-based structure, and then it's wrapped into a flowchart, which is something that everybody understands and are used heavily in manufacturing, so that now I can have – I move, and then I wait for a second, and then I close my gripper, and then I move again, right? And that's four blocks that are very readable and easy to understand. Um, and that's what allows an actual end user to program the robot. So it's everything underneath that's giving you the that common language. And then that easy interface atop it that lets the the average person have access um, to and, and make these robots do what they need to do.
0: I guess my question at this point is, first off, the way you explain it, it seems so intuitive that this should have been in place like 10 years ago. So I guess first, maybe you could address why no one thought about this. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, where are we with the rollout of this kind of thing? I mean, your product in its basic form has been out for a little while, right? And uh, I'm just sort of curious, you know, if you look at the shop floor of robots right now, and and as you pointed out with COVID, uh, I understand a lot of projects have gone from kind of like demo state to like full rollout. Um, so what does this all mean for, uh, for the kinds of people who now can uh, not just sort of assemble the, this technology, but actually operate it, you know, who, who are operators? Are they actually non-programmers or, you know, wh- where are we with the rollout of, of a truly low slash no code um, situation? So we're there.
1: Um, We have uh, a huge number of customers that have done this in exactly the way that I say, where it has been, you know, uh, they've decided to put in a robotic cell. They've chosen Reddy's products, uh, ForgeOS, running that robot to do that. And they've been able to deploy that robot to the factory floor themselves in in a matter of hours or days. Uh, and these were systems that took weeks or months to put in place, beforehand. Um, Great sort of canonical example, we had a, a system that was put in place to do machine tending, right? So you have a big CNC lathe, it's taking cylinders and parts and cutting them into you know, different shapes. And there was one gentleman who was running that machine. There were four other machines. And when I say running, I mean, he was putting a piece of metal in and taking it out when it was a different shape, right? That was he was an operator. He was also in charge of programming that machine. And that's really where his key value was. There were four other machines that were not seeing a lot of use because anytime he spent programming them, he wasn't making the parts on the first machine, right? So you see the issue. So what we were able to do is is with our software, he was able to put a robot in place doing that machining task himself. Uh, he's subsequently pro- reprogrammed it for different parts hundreds of times uh, for different SKUs that they run. And uh, he does that all himself. And he you know, didn't have any robotics experience. He didn't have any, uh, sort of higher education in the technology space. He's just a machinist. Right. And, and but he was able to leverage, um, his knowledge about the product, which was profound, um, and use the easy to use technology to actually get the robot to make it in the right way. And now he runs that machine and he runs all five of those other machines, um, at the same time because he's now freed up to do what he is really good at and what he's really valuable for, this this machine programming uh, 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 task, right? So that's the type of example we see where a company can very rapidly Um, Get one of these systems in and have it up and running in a matter of hours and have it uh, running production tasks in in days. Right. That's that's the differentiator from the standpoint of actually getting this stuff into the wild. And it's and it's out there right now making millions of parts.
0: But you um, said something interesting. You yeah. said that he clearly had a deep, this operator in your example, had a deep knowledge of the product. I'm just trying to uh, yes. have you uh, specify a little bit when we think about the upskilling challenge, because I guess there's two kinds of upskilling challenges. One is existing operators who, you know, if we take your example, he had a mm. many years experience in a perhaps inefficient process. However, he knew it, uh, you know, inside and out. Yes. Um, so that part... Changes, I, I guess, in terms of you know how quickly he was able to leverage this new interface versus, I guess, the challenge which I know you've also been faced with, which is you take workers who have been made redundant from uh, an industry that is in decline, which is you know there, there's plenty of them to choose yeah, from, exactly. uh, right? Uh, but you know they then have a dual problem. They not only have to learn this new interface, they they probably actually have to learn the process and the, and the product in the, in the first place. What are you, uh, how are you thinking about the kinds of upscaling that's needed in the robotics uh, or manufacturing industry? And, you know, I I believe you had an an example that you tried in Kentucky uh, that I wanted you to talk about as well.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, And you bring up a really good point because it is this dual problem of learning the technological tool set. And then learning how to do stuff with that in a factory setting, and learning how to make the part right. Um, and you bring up bring up the the pilot that we ran at ECAMI, which is a training center in um, Kentucky, uh, that their goal is to retrain people who have been sort of displaced by the decline of the mining industry in that region. Um, So they have uh, former coal miners who go to the school to learn about CNC technology. We then taught a, a robotics course using our software On top of that, uh, a two-week training course, and the goal of that training course was to um, take their CNC skills that they had and now give them robotics on top of that. What was interesting and what we found was typically when you're learning robotic technology, you're gonna spend two to four weeks to learn the basics of using the robot, period. Making it move around, maybe grab objects, but really the basics. And then you're going to spend a huge amount of time learning about automation. How do you actually get the robot to do the thing that it needs to do? Where do you put parts? How are those parts repeatedly located? How do you hold them properly? How do you design the robot so it can grab the part in a way that, uh, because the part's changing, it comes out of the machine a different shape than when it went in? All of those different uh, considerations, they need to learn as well. With our software, they learned the basics of the robot in two days and then the rest That's of the incredible. two week yeah, and then the rest of the two week course was teaching them about automation right the rest of that two week course was as as you said spent on turning them into the person who's been there for 30 years right who actually understands the process and how to make it work right so by making the automation the tool much more accessible you can very quickly get to the learning about the industry, the process, the task that you're going to have to learn anyways, especially someone coming from uh, a different industry and upskilling into the manufacturing space. Um, and, And that in other industries, that's not even a thing, right? Like when you go and learn to be a carpenter, you don't spend two months learning how to swing a hammer, right? You spend five minutes learning how to swing a hammer, and then you learn about how to be a carpenter, right? That is, that is the progression. The tool chain, in that sense, is very easy to learn. In robotics, we're making it similar so that mm-hmm. once they have that set of tools uh, to, to follow that same analog, they can, once you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Right. Once they now know how to automate, once they have the, the basics of how to do auto- robotic automation, they can walk into a factory setting not only prepared to do that specific task that they may be tasked to do, but they can also look around and go, wow, where else can we use this technology? Oh, there's a process over there that's really interesting. I bet a robot can do that, right? And they start looking at the entire factory floor through this lens of what's possible. Um, and, and we've seen that with not only newcomers into the industry, but also incumbents, the, the people who are already spent 30 years there. By giving them an automation, uh, automation software that makes it accessible for them, you see this ownership that you don't typically see, right? Normal automation, they were doing the task before, and now they're going to go do something else, and there was a robot, and now there's a robot there, right? That's, that's how it's been for the last 20 years. Now, because the worker who was previously doing the task put that cell in, put that robot there. It's theirs. They own it. And they're motivated to keep it running, to put in more of them, right? They have this empowerment uh, that they wouldn't have because it's theirs, because they understand the tools. It's accessible. They can do it. So it's really been transformative to see not only um, people very quickly becoming able to use this technology because of how easy our products are, But also, once they do know, as I said, the the gentleman at that factory who's reprogrammed the system hundreds of times, he's found new ways to use the robot. He's designed new gripper fingers himself. He's done all of this stuff because what is he fundamentally? He's a problem solver, right? That's his skill set is solving problems. And I've now just given him another set of tools within the form of a robot that he can actually use to solve more problems and to solve a broader set of problems. That's what we're excited
0: about. Kel, I'm, I, I wanted to address one issue, which is that the industry, you know, manufacturing industry hasn't always been thought of as cool. And by cool, I don't just mean like in a colloquial sense, like it's, you know, it's something yeah. that, you know, that the young people don't like. I mean, that, of course, is its own issue, but literally there has been created this notion that, There's something about this industry that just isn't competitive in the Western world. Mm -hmm. Arguably, robotics came in and has kind of somewhat changed that. Where do we stand on that issue? And, and, you know, to what extent do you think that these new platforms that your company and others are bringing into into the fore, you know, in the U.S. and other advanced uh, kind of Western countries is going to actually change the way that we all have to see this industry there 's nothing inherently backward about manufacturing in fact, you know uh, there are a lot of technologies coming into this space, but on the other hand, there's something very complicated uh, you know uh, about it too uh, yet uh, there is mass production, which you know perhaps isn 't that complicated once you uh, you know have the machine tools to do it so how how do you how do you see that the the balance between you know how to how to really look at the overall manufacturing industry and how this various this coolness factor changes and doesn't sh- change with the next shiny tool. So I wanted to link it to our previous discussion about uh, this sort of obsession with the with the shiny tool. Now the manufacturing ish- uh, industry does have a shiny tool, but you were just saying that obsession around the tool itself it really is is sort of clouding our understanding about how you can actually enact a change. So so I guess it's a complicated question but you know where goes the manufacturing industry and 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 you know is the true cool kind of here to here to stay and is that a good thing?
1: I think it is. And and so let's talk about competitiveness first because you brought up a really great point. Um, you know, especially in the United States, we definitely saw a lot of manufacturing processes move overseas uh, because of labor costs, right? Um, If you talk to, and I've discussed this uh, with a number of, uh, you know, manufacturing leaders, but if you talk to any manufacturing leader in the United States, they'll say that in order for us to be competitive, we have to automate, period. Like it's just not, it's not even up for discussion. So the ability to more quickly deploy automation into manufacturing in the United States is a large part. Of bringing more and more manufacturing to the back to the U.S. Uh, and being able to keep up with the trends, because be, there are a lot of different trends that are driving that. People want stuff that is made close to home. Uh, there's a lot of demand for customization, customization, and rapidly uh, and sort of rapid iteration of design cycles require that manufacturing is close to where things are designed. Things are designed in the United States. We need to manufacture them in the United States, so there's there's a lot of that desire, and and automation is the only way to do that at the price point that we can actually um, we can actually do it in the United States. Um, from the standpoint of the landscape, larger than that, you're right that the manufacturing has sort of had an image problem um, for the last uh, thirty years, right? And and you see that because uh, the there's the, the labor force in manufacturing is very top-heavy. It's mostly sort of 45 and older um, because that's when, back in the day, when it was, uh, you know, when it was cool to get into manufacturing, that's that's when people did. Now that all of those people are retiring, um, the, the skill shortage I talked about is only getting worse. And, you know, nobody who's 21 years old who's graduating college is going into manufacturing right now for the most part. Um, so, I think technology, it's not just the fact that we now have some new shiny thing to uh, to attract people to manufacturing. It's the fact that I think this year has and the events of this past year have taught us how ma- how important manufacturing is, taught uh, people who didn't really have it in their mind's eye now that manufacturing is more important. But I think what's interesting is that now that we're finally building the tool sets that allow people who were not in manufacturing, who were not doing it for 30 years, who were not controls engineers, who were not so familiar with the space, um, we're building technology now that makes the entire industry more attractive. And it's not more attractive as like, oh, look how pretty it is. It's more attractive as it is, I can solve problems and I can make money right? Because that's what drives anybody into an industry is, is I see interesting problems that I want to solve, and I can make money solving those problems. And and you saw this sort of in the phone space, right? Nobody in 2001 was sitting there thinking about how great it would be to start a company that makes an apps for a phone, right? Even though there were smartphones, right? Uh, But all of a sudden with Android and iOS, you had the opportunity there, not just the shiny thing, but the opportunity to go, wow, I can make a business out of making software for mobile phones. I'm going to go do that. There's really cool problems that I can solve in that space, right? That's the transformation that we're going to see in the next five years, really, uh, is manufacturing being seen as an opportunity, not just something that's not, you know, that's cool, but it is an opportunity, a place where um, I, being somebody from outside the industry, can look at it and go, wow, I know a lot about cameras. Maybe there's some camera problems that I could solve in manufacturing. And maybe somebody will buy those because it's a problem that really needs to be solved, right? That's why people move into the industry. So so creating that opportunity, and, and that is is really important, and that's really where our products are going, right? The reason that we are building a software development kit on top of our software so that uh, developers from outside the manufacturing space can look at manufacturing and go, wow, there's an SDK where I can build applications for robots. That sounds awesome, right? They can do that. And also on the front end side where people who were former coal miners can go, wow, wait, I can program a robot. I can do that. That sounds a lot better than what I'm doing right now, right? So that's the, the idea is creating the opportunity um, to actually get into the manufacturing space, solve those problems and, uh, and, and build solutions.
0: You know, it's exciting and interesting that you mentioned five years as a time frame. You know, as kind of a futurist, that is a time frame that doesn't seem very complicated. Although I think the pandemic has taught everybody that there are these uh, events that can happen that makes even the next five years uh, become a cognitive challenge to even sort of envision where where we're heading. So clearly, if you think that this is a lasting uh, change uh, that will transform the manufacturing industry over the next five years that's that's important but if you maybe would entertain the notion of a little longer time frame if you look sure. maybe 10 10 10 years or, or even longer into the future where where will we be with uh robotic platforms with the skills required to operate robots really with the functionality of a robot and let's kind of maybe stick to the kind of the factory manufacturing space um do you see that workers will be largely augmented or will they be largely also, I guess, automated away? And is that going to be a good or or, or a bad thing long-term? Will we adjust simply to just finding different tasks that humans can do? And then it'll be more clearly delineated where the roles are between machines and humans and how we can uh, uh, collaborate.
1: Yeah, it's it's really a question of augmentation because as I said, we're so far behind the curve of having enough people to meet demand that the robots that are putting in place are not displacing anyone because there's nobody there to displace right now. Um, And even more broadly, I work with Aaron Prather. He's uh, an executive at FedEx, and um, one of the things he said was they had a factory that uh, that was processing um, some number of packages, and they had a thousand people working there. And that was 15 to 20 years ago. Now they still have a thousand people working at that factory at that processing facility, and they do three times the amount of work. Right? That's what automation can do. Uh, and what process improvement can do. So it's, 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 about, it's about augmentation. And um, I, I see a future where um, a lot of the tasks that people do right now, where they do have a lot of knowledge about the process, get transformed into automated tasks, but those people are still there acting as more of a supervisor capability, right? I mean, we've seen at uh, at, at, at factories, um, one of our customers is Stanley Black & Decker. We saw this at one of their facilities where they actually created a new class of of job at that factory, which was basically a robot technician, somebody who had been skilled up with our software to manage the several robots that they had um, running uh, those processes that that person previously was sitting there doing, right? So now it's like an entirely new job that didn't exist uh, five years ago, right? So I think that um, what people do. I think the people that are in manufacturing, I think it's critical that they stay in manufacturing because, again, they have all the knowledge about how to make the, these products. Um, but what they do will probably change into a more problem-solving role rather than a putting pieces of metal into a machine role. Hmm. Um, you're going to see a large transition there. And I, and I think in the next 10 years, you're also going to see um, a lot of new robotic technologies that uh, redefine... Um, how these uh, systems operate. There's uh, a lot of work right now in the machine learning and artificial intelligence space about how to make robots more adaptive, generally not just in manufacturing, um, so that they can handle uh, more... um, a variety of different situations and environments because that's the main downside of a robot right now is, is you program it to do one thing and within, you know, the the scope of what it's able to do, it, that thing really can't change that much. Whereas uh, you put a person to, into a new uh, um Situation, they just sort of figure it out. So you're going to see smarter robots in that sense, but you're still going to need people to show them the ropes. Uh, even if they do learn in a sort of sci-fi futuristic fashion, where you can just tell them what to do, somebody still needs to be there who knows to tell them what to do. Right? It's uh, it's it's that it's that thing. So I think in the near term, there's there's no there's no concern about that, and and nobody that I talk to is concerned about um, about losing employees to automation, they're more interested in how many employees they will be able to hire because they can expand their business because automation makes them more competitive. Those are the type of conversations that I have.
0: Fantastic. Lastly, just uh, super quickly, where, where should people go? Uh, well, we've talked about upskilling. Where, where's the best place to get skilled on this? And, and then lastly, for you, where do you uh, kind of sharpen your teeth when you want to discuss about where the industry is moving?
1: Absolutely. So, um, so for, for people who are interested in, um, getting into automation, we have created a, a website called ready.academy. So that's the entire web address, just ready.academy, um, that will show you how, not only how to use a robot, but how to actually do, uh, meaningful things in an industrial setting with that robot. It's all free. You can go and sign up and start learning immediately. Um, and that, and that, we've seen a lot of people have a lot of success with that because there hasn't been this place, especially very practically uh, oriented towards manufacturing, where you can go and just learn about how to use a robot in, in the wild, right? It's, it's been like, I have to go to a trade school or something like that. So this is, again, on the note of accessibility, designed to be a curriculum that is access, as accessible Um, As possible. And it's something that we're also working with educational institutions uh, to continue to develop as well. So that's the best place that uh, if you want to learn more about um, the actual tasks, go to ready.academy. If you're interested in learning more about our products, uh, ready-robotics.com. Um, to To learn more about that, the the places I uh, continue to learn, um, I follow a lot of forums. Um, there are a lot of really great people on social media and YouTube that I listen to because a lot of the uh, academic papers that are out there are now sort of have turned into uh, content creators, which is which is really awesome. So, um, so it's it's uh, been easier to consume, but you know it's when you're interested in this stuff, there's a lot of people talking about it and a lot of really brilliant minds um, thinking about it and, uh, you know, finding a slice of that, that you, you know, that you prefer is, is really, you know, your the world's your oyster. So.
0: Thanks, Kel. This has been fascinating. I wish you best of luck with uh, the next few years and uh, hope we can stay in touch.
1: Thank you so much, Sean. It was a pleasure.
0: You have just listened to Episode 6 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trond Narnenheim. The topic was Human-Robot Interaction Challenges. Our guest was Kel Gehrin, Chief Innovation Officer at Ready Robotics. In this conversation, we talked about the trends in the robotic manufacturing community, solutions, robotic OS, and the future, including a vision of a world where open robotic platforms dominate and no specialized skills are required to operate robots. My takeaway is that the fact that human-robot interaction has not developed at the pace of technology is a challenge. We now need to remedy this shortcut. Change is underway. Is it happening fast enough? Are the interfaces simple enough to bring in scores of existing manufacturing workers or recruit new talent? If robots truly are to make manufacturing cool again, our tools to communicate with them and our willingness to try both need to improve. We have a ways to go, but the direction is good. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode two, How to Train Augmented Workers, episode three, Reimagine Training, or episode four, A Renaissance of Manufacturing. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast.